Well, good morning. Uh, I'd like to thank you for inviting my wife, Celine, and I out to Grace. Uh, it's been a great weekend, and uh, though we've lived in New York City for about six years, we've only made it out to the Hamptons a few times, so hopefully this is the first step in remedying that. Uh, the, the hospitality shown by this congregation has been encouraging, and so on behalf of Celine and myself, I'd like to say thank you. Today's scripture reading is found in the 10th chapter of Leviticus, verses 1 through 3 and verses 8 through 20. It's printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean, And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eliezer and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. <clears throat> now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eliezer and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And yet, such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. This is the word of the Lord. This is one of the tougher passages to talk about in the Old Testament. Within two verses, the only characters introduced up until that point in the passage are killed. And they're killed by the Lord. And if if that's not enough to consume our thoughts, Moses enters the picture on God's behalf and charges Aaron, the father of the two individuals who were just killed, with some specific, strict, heavy things. So if you're anything like me, the first time I went through this passage, you might be kind of like, that's the Old Testament. I'm going to keep reading and hopefully I'll find something a bit more positive. If you're a Christian, even though you might struggle with a passage like this, a passage that highlights God's just wrath, we can rest our hope in the resurrected Christ. And if you're here today not quite sure what you believe, it's my hope that God's grace and love may reveal itself 
even if it's just a glimpse in a passage like this. And so to that end, the good news is this, my friends. This is God's word, and we can always find hope in it. It might not be instantly recognizable, but we should always pray that God will reveal himself and his grace through his word. So today, I'd like to dive into this passage and unpack a few points. Number one, what happens when you think you can control God's command? When you think you can seek his glory on your own terms? Second, let's take a look, though it will be brief considering the topic, how seriously God actually takes sin. And finally, we'll wrap up with the good news of points one and two. As Christians, we should not only seek God on his term, terms, but delight in his commands along the way. So one, what happens when you seek glory on your own terms? Two, how serious does God actually take sin? And three, let's delight in God's commands. So first, what happens when you think you can seek glory on your own terms, not honoring God's commands? We have a very quick answer to this question, for this specific situation at least, in the beginning of the story. Now for a bit of context, who are Nadab and Abihu? A couple of chapters earlier, in Leviticus 8, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, were ordained with their father by Moses. And just so you know, Leviticus 8 is a beautiful chapter. It's 36 verses Uh, And it's very vivid. It's a vivid story. And it talks about the ordination process during the time of Moses. And in fact, the offerings and sacrifices that are laid out in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, in chapter 8, that's the first time they're performed. So it's a pretty historical, biblical event. The end of chapter 8 reads like this. So Aaron and his sons did everything the Lord commanded through Moses. These are special men. They are godly men. Aaron the father and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu. Chapter 9 then follows the men as they begin their ministry. And then we get to chapter 10 and things take a major turn. Where chapter 10 starts, at the end of chapter 9, an offering was just put up to the Lord. And he consumed that offering with fire. Now, in the beginning of chapter 10, the fire of the Lord emerges again, this time consuming Aaron's sons. So what happened? We're not immediately given many details, but there is an important word in the first verse. In the NIV translation that we heard, and it's also in the ESV translation in your Bibles uh, in the pews, the word used is unauthorized. Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire to the Lord. Now, the original Hebrew word used here is zor. Zor. Zor is a verb that basically means to be a stranger. And in this context, it's actually used as an adjective to describe the fire that the sons were offering. And it designates something quite literally outside the law of God, a stranger to the law of God. So if we read it like that, we're reading about these two ordained priests who are ordained through the Lord, by the Lord through the prophet Moses, offering a fire that is outside the law of God. While it might not be instantly noted when we read it, we can hopefully take a step back now and acknowledge that their offense might be a bit more serious than it first appeared. If you turn to the New Testament to James, the apostle opens up the third chapter of his his epistle with a pretty blatant piece of correspondence. He writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, it's tough to say from this Leviticus reading, but I do think it's an important distinction to note that what happened to Aaron's sons should be viewed as happening to two God-ordained priests who knew better than to offer up anything outside the law of God. 
The previous context we talked about is important for this too. In chapter 9, Aaron performed the offering, and he performed it properly. His sons know what it means to take this kind of thing seriously. In verse 3 of chapter 10, God then explains why this is such a serious offense, to offer up unauthorized fire. Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And I think that's an important phrase, proved holy. You could also interpret this, the original Hebrew word is kadash, to be as treated as holy, or show myself holy. So even though they knew of his holiness, Nadab and Abihu didn't treat God as holy. And he responds in such a way to show how holy he is. So we ask what happens when we think that we can control God's command. To put it succinctly, we can't. We may not find ourselves in a situation where we have to make a decision to offer up unauthorized incense to the Lord or not, but we likely struggle on a daily basis with not treating God as holy, with not putting our trust in him completely, allowing other things in our lives, our jobs, our relationships, money, sex, to be treated holier. So softening this just a bit, when we try to take control of God's command, when we don't prove him to be holy in our actions and our own lives, God is not happy. Now, if you're like me in your prayer life, you probably ask God for things. That's not a bad thing. We're called to pray, and we're called to put our desires in front of the Lord. And I know I do that on a regular basis. God, please watch over this, watch over that, and hopefully the outcome then will be something that I want. God, give me guidance. Give me a sign. How many times, though, when you give a prayer like that, has God presented something in front of you, and maybe you don't pursue it? For me, that happened, well, that happens a lot, but for me specifically, uh, it happened a few jobs ago. I was working for a radio station in New York, and the company that owned it got bought out by another company. So the environment in the office changed. There were massive layoffs. There were new bad attitudes. And so I prayed. I prayed that God would make things better. I had a great job, what I considered my dream job, at a great radio station, but things weren't good, so God, please make this better for me. What I didn't realize was that God wasn't going to make things better, at least not what I thought better meant, by me staying there. It took a couple of months to realize it, but God was presenting to me an opportunity to leave that dream job at that great station to go work for another company doing something different. For those couple of months, when I kept trying to convince God that things should remain the same, just get better, I wasn't treating him as holy. I wasn't putting my trust in him. I wasn't listening to him. I asked him for something, but in reality, what I wanted wasn't what God gave me. Now, I might not have been offering unauthorized fire, but I definitely wasn't treating God as holy. But if I'm honest with myself, offering unauthorized fire might not be such a foreign concept in my spiritual walk either. The way we treat those around us, whether they're our spouses, our friends, our colleagues, we know how to treat those relationships because we see the perfect relationship in Christ and his people, all who are made in the image of his Father. And yet, how quickly we can forget that, how quickly we can offer offer unauthorized fire, something outside of God's command and that great command to love thy neighbor, if something doesn't go our way when our plans don't go as we expect them to. So when we don't treat God as holy, when we seek our own glory on our own terms, God is not happy. But why? And the answer to that question, why is he not happy, leads right into the second point or question. How serious does God actually take sin? And the answer to that effectively answers both questions. 
He takes sin more serious than we can even imagine, and that is why he's not pleased when we try to skirt his command. We can look at the actions of Adab and Abihu and without question determine what they did was a serious offense simply by God's reaction. God is not irrational. He does not act on whims. And he did what he did to demonstrate his holiness, to show himself to be holy. He takes this sin that occurred so serious that when we think we can step in and take control of his command, he responds justly. Why is it that we think we can control God, that we think we can replace him him with things like our jobs or our relationships? All of these things, too, they're not inherently bad. But when we let them fill our lives where God should be, they are. And they distract us and they lead us to believe we're controlling everything around us. I think about that prayer for things at my radio station. That wasn't about God's command. That, wasn't about, that, that was about me trying to control my environment. This happens because of sin, because we are sinful, broken creatures. Nadab and Abihu, two men who were ordained by the prophet Moses, they still weren't removed from sin. And their sin consumed them, literally. So we can say because of their sin and because of how serious God took their actions that their father, Aaron, is having probably the toughest day of his life. He was just ordained by his sons. He's made an offering to the Lord in front of them. And now he's experiencing their deaths in a very vicious way by their Lord, by his Lord. This isn't the end of the story. In fact, it's just the beginning. Following their death, following the Lord's exclamation that he will be proved holy... He charges Aaron with a big order. Don't drink wine when you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. And the tent of meeting for this particular setting is the holy place. So don't drink wine before you go into the holy place or you will die. He then explains why. Aaron and all priests are to teach the Israelites, that is God's people, all the decrees the Lord has given through Moses. This is major. The priests, and we're looking squarely at Aaron in this passage, He is a representative not just of God, but of the law of God. And so, as one fourth-century theologian put it, whatever intoxicates and disturbs the balance of the mind, avoid as you would wine. This isn't to say wine is bad, but perhaps it's God explaining to Aaron, don't be distracted when you enter the holy place. Be lucid. Be clear. And so what follows that is equally important, in order of specific commands listed by Moses. What's so shocking here is that after Moses runs through the commands in verses 12 through 15, we find out that Aaron and his family might have actually disobeyed God's law, like Abihu and Nadab. In chapter 9, verse 15, the author of Leviticus writes that Aaron brought an offering, a goat, and offered it for the people's sin. But instead of eating it, Moses now finds out in chapter 10 that the goat was burned. When he asks why they burned the goat rather than eating it as he commanded, Aaron bears his soul. At that time, eating a sin offering was a celebratory event. Aaron, who lost his two sons, was in no condition to celebrate. He was in no condition to throw a banquet. He laments what happened to him. And he kind of turns the tables on Moses and says, Really? Do you really think God would be pleased if I celebrated after my sons, my sons who disobeyed God's law, were killed? The most powerful part of this passage, then, comes in that last verse. Grace is shown, and Moses is satisfied. Matthew Henry was a minister who lived in the mid-1660s, and he died in the 1700s. And probably the most important work of his life was a commentary he wrote on the Bible. 
And he went through, from starting from the Old Testament, he went verse by verse. And he didn't write a high-level theological commentary, but he wrote a very practical, accessible commentary, a commentary that uh, we still use today. And on this very point, Matthew Henry writes, Afflictions should rather quicken us to our duty than take us from it. But our unfitness for duty, when it is natural and not sinful, will have great allowances made for it. God will have mercy and not sacrifice. Our unfitness for duty, when it is natural and not sinful, will have great allowances made for it. God will have mercy. That is what Moses displayed. He showed grace to Aaron. God takes sin very seriously, as noted in the opening of Leviticus 10. But as we know, because we have the historical context of the rest of the Bible, specifically the first coming of Jesus Christ, we know that there is something God takes even more seriously than sin, and that is the life of the sinner. So point one, we looked at what happens when you seek glory on your own terms. And in point two, we looked at how seriously God takes sin. And now point three, we should delight in God's command because of how seriously God takes the life of the sinner. He offers us the ultimate grace that Moses exemplified when he spoke with Aaron. He offers sinners the grace of salvation and eternal life. After interacting with the rich young man in Matthew 19, and this story can also be found in Luke and Mark, Jesus turns to his disciples and admits that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when his audience asks him, who then can be saved, which is a pretty legitimate response, Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With God, with God's command, with God's serious take on sin, with God's grace. Because we know the life of Jesus and because we know the grace that is offered to sinners, we can read Leviticus 10 in a different, with a different perspective. We can read it in this progression. There is sin... There is a sin offering, and there is grace. There is sin in Nadab and Abihu. There is a sin offering in Aaron, and there is grace shown in Moses. Now fast forward some centuries, and we can see a similar, though wholly unique, progression. There is sin in mankind all over the world. There is a sin offering, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and there is grace shown to all those who don't deserve it. That's why we can celebrate this story and a passage like this and what happened in it. God has always been the God who takes sin seriously, much more seriously than us. The God who looks at sin completely differently than we do. And instead of creating a universe where he is constantly taking the lives of sinners, what happened in Leviticus 10 serves to lead to the first coming of Christ. God gave the life of his son for the life of sinners. It's a complete reversal. And it's an utter display of his staggering grace for his people. In Matthew 19, in that interaction Jesus had with the rich young man, his exclamation that to be saved is impossible on man's account, that it is only possible with God, that's a stark reminder of his command, of his plan, that any efforts to try and control it are pointless. It's a display of Jesus' indescribable love for mankind, for sinners. He had everything and he gave it up. And anything that he had left was stripped away as he hung on the cross. So what happens when you think you can control God's command? Well, he may not consume you with fire on this earth, but what you think you're pursuing, what you think you're filling your life with, if it's not God, if it's not trusting him, we get further and further from him. 
So how do we begin to fill our lives with God, addressing those things in our lives that are pulling us away, that are keeping us in denial? We have to look at our sin as seriously as God does, or because God is perfect, we should strive to hit that point. All sin is an affront to God, and all sin takes us outside of his law. When we should be proving his holiness, we are doing the exact opposite as our lives get more and more steeped in sin. So how do we start taking it more seriously? Repent. Confess. We find the guidebook actually in Matthew 19, and in Jesus' dealing with that rich young man. In verse 17 he says, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And in 21, responding to the young man's pride, Jesus says, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Follow me. Not only should we respect God's command and put our trust in him, we should follow him. We should delight in it. In Psalm 119, the psalmist beautifully writes, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments. I will meditate on your statutes. When we read Leviticus 10 through the lens of the cross, God's commands are not just to be obeyed, to be boxes that are checked off, but they can actually be celebrated. We can delight in them because they bring us closer to Christ, closer to that treasure in heaven, freeing us. The great theologian Augustine wrote about God's law, the more one delights in it, the less one is afflicted by its burdensomeness and the more one is quickened by its light. The more you delight in God's law, the more you will be quickened by its light. We can praise God for his command We can praise God not just for how seriously he takes sin, but how much more seriously he takes the lives of sinners. And that is perfectly displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what we celebrate as Christians, and that can free us from the earthly burdens we face each day. Keep the commandments, delight in them, follow him, and through his grace, with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that even if it's just a glimpse of your grace or your love, that you reveal yourself through your word every time we open it. So Lord, I pray that what we heard this morning might stir inside of us to seek your glory, not on our own terms, but on your terms, Lord. And as we do that, that we might delight in your commands and view your commands as part of seeking our glory with you. Lord, we lift all these things up. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen.